Amen. Well, glory to God. It is a joy and an honor to be here once again. I wanted to say thank you very much to the church. I really appreciate all the effort that goes into this meeting. Uh, something this big doesn't just happen by accident. A lot of hours and days and weeks go into it, and I appreciate the effort. The room is fantastic, genuinely. One of the nicest hotels, one of the nicest rooms I've ever been in. don't know how much you paid for that, but appreciate that. It's wonderful. The food's been great. Song, fellowship, all of us been wonderful. Now, I'm glad just to be a part of it. Thank you, preacher, for having me again. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 27. I want to read you a passage from Matthew 27, then Mark 15, and then Luke 23. And then keep your Bibles open. We'll be going a lot through Scripture this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 is where we'll begin. Matthew 27, 51, the Bible says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Mark 15, 38 will be our next text verse, and then we'll read you one from Luke 23. Mark 15, 38, And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom in the Luke 23, 45, where Luke will add a bit of detail to this. Luke chapter 23, verse 45, And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Heavenly Father, bless, I pray, the reading of your word, the preaching to follow. Give me exactly what you'd have your people to have this day. Lord, empty me of self and selfish desire, any thought of vainglory. May I exalt Christ high and lift it up before the eyes and the ears of the people. Lord, I'll be really grateful and I praise you if you do that. These things I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Uh, some, some years ago, we started a homeless ministry in our church. And uh, Mooresboro, where I pastor, is a really unique place. You've heard some of the stories through the years. Every time I get here, I feel like I'm in New York City. Uh, Mooresboro, we used to have 307. Now we've got 297. We're the 49th smallest town in North Carolina, and, and all the weird people live around there. We started a homeless ministry. We started going downtown into Shelby and bringing people in on Sunday nights and we'd minister to them, feed them a meal and then uh, preach a message to them in our, in, our, in our fellowship hall, then bring them into church and let them uh, stay in church with us and then take them back that night. And we grew to love these folks. And one particular gentleman, uh, he'd been doing good for a while, but he'd been, he'd been so addicted for so many years and had so much substance in his system that his mind got to where it would wander. And some days he'd be completely lucid. Some days he'd be just completely unaware of where he was. We got a call from Danville, Virginia, 200 miles away from an officer saying, we found a guy walking down the center of the highway. All he knows is you're his pastor. So we, 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 we arranged... <laughs> It's great, great for, for, for an officer to know, uh, for this guy to know. Uh, well, he, we, were, we arranged to get him back home. This is just the way it went with him. Well, we got a call one day, and, and I called him Tom. Uh, my church member said, Tom, uh, Preacher, Tom is on the, the, the railing of the bridge uh, over 74 there by the angles. I think he's going to jump. It's about eight miles from, from our church. I, I broke more laws getting there than I ever care to admit. I'm just glad there's no police anywhere nearby. And by the time I got there, he was, he'd already crawled off the railing, was walking the other direction. And I went the truck in behind him, and, and, and I shouted to him. I said, Tom, get in the truck. And he looked, and you could see he was trying to figure out who it was. And it finally dawned on him who I was. He said, oh, hey, preacher. And he got in the truck, and the odor was overpowering. I mean, I've never smelled anybody like that in my life. We knew this is what we're dealing with with him. We've tried to help him for a lot of years now. And I said, Tom, we need to get you somewhere where you can get some help. But they've already told me not to bring you back if you smell like this. So we've got to get you cleaned up first. I went down to Walmart and brought them all new, bought them all new clothes and some toiletries. And I, 
And then I, I went back to the church and brought him back into my office. I've got a bathroom and a shower there in my office. And I said, Tom, listen to me real carefully. Get in that bathroom. Take your clothes off. Throw them away. Put them in the trash can. Get rid of the rags. Clean up. Take a good shower. Dry off. Put your new clothes on. Come back out. And we'll get you to somewhere that can get you some help. Uh, uh, well, pro- Tom, get in there in that bathroom. Take your clothes off. Throw them away. Take a shower. Clean off. Dry off. Come back out. We'll get some help. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a preacher. I got a preacher. So he went, he went in there to the bathroom, and I heard rustling around, and a few minutes later I heard some water running. And I sat down behind the desk and started doing some work and just, you know, just sort of lost track of what was going on. A few minutes later I, I heard the door open and, and shuffling in my office and, and, and I heard him sit down across from the couch from me and looked up and went, Get your naked, wet, dripping, dirty self off my couch! Get in there, dry off, clean off, and get dressed. I don't want a dirty, naked, homeless man on my couch. He's dripping sweat and dirt and filth all over the place. I'll never get that sight out of my mind. Scarred for life. I cannot tell you how much I did not want him in there at that moment. I really, really wanted him barred from that area. As we look at the passages we read just a moment ago, we find two new things in one restatement of an earlier event. The moment that Christ died, the very earth itself recoiled at what was done to his creator. How could the land not shake when the one who spoke it into existence out of nothing was put to death? This earthquake was so severe that it was even mentioned by secular Roman writers. Well, this earthquake was also severe enough that rocks were literally torn to pieces. It doesn't seem to have been a long earthquake, but it wasn't a very violent one. Luke also mentions what had previously been mentioned, that the sun went dark. And we know from an earlier verse that the darkness lasted for three hours and the light came on again mere moments before Christ died. But as interesting as all that is... It pales in comparison to what all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention. The fact that the very second that Christ died, the veil in the temple that barred people from even seeing the Holy of Holies was ripped in two. Believe me, this was God the Father sending the most overt message of all. A message that couldn't have been any clearer if it were written in the sky for all the world to see. But it's not the fact of the tearing of the veil that fascinates me right now, but the timing of the tearing of the veil. I want to do my best to give you the entire story. I want to preach a message about the subject, when the veil was torn. I begin to go back towards the Old Testament, just land in the book of Genesis. We'll work up there from there. Let me show you, first of all, the bringing of the veil. Now, the story of the tearing of the veil is a story that really started about 2,000 years before Calvary. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abram. He is living in an idolatrous land called Ur of the Chaldees. God comes to him and he says, Abram, Abram, get up and move. And, and the conversation goes something like, well, God, where am I going? Well, you, you don't need to know that. You just go and I'll tell you when you get there. And he said, yes, sir, I'll go. Well, he ends up in the land of Canaan. God promises him the land, but he's also promised that he himself will not receive it, but his, his seed will inherit it. But he's also told before that happens, there'll be a little matter of enslavement. Well, he gives birth to Isaac, and after Isaac, there's Jacob, and, and Joseph comes along. And you know the story about how Joseph's brothers hated him and, and sold him into Egypt. And then they come down there, and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Uh, there's him jerking their chain for a little bit, and then there's the reconciliation, and all the family moves down into Egypt. 
While they're there in Egypt, they, they begin to grow as a land, as a people. Matter of fact, they begin to get very, very numerous. Now, the land that they are in is a polytheistic land. And they worship pretty much everything. They worship the Nile, crocodiles, bulls, frogs, lions, leopards, just about everything in nature, really. And as you might imagine, when most everything is a god to you, and when you can see it and in most cases touch it, it ceases to instill much awe in you, and it's certainly not going to make you despise sin or hunger for holiness. And Israel was in that culture under that polytheistic influence for a very long time. When the Jews began to continue to multiply, and then came the attempt to exterminate them, they said, look, they're getting more numerous than us, and if war comes, they'll fall out with our enemies. Let's, let's, let's destroy them. Let's try to assimilate them. And if we can't assimilate them, we'll kill all the male baby boys. We'll, we'll ruin them. We'll destroy this people. But, but God wasn't going to let that happen. He'd have made a promise to Abram. Uh, by and by, a family gives birth to a boy that is going to become known as Moses. And they're supposed to kill him, but his, his mother has faith and won't do that. She hides him as long as she can Three months later, she knows she can't hide him anymore. Takes him down there to the Nile River, puts him in that little uh, ark of bulrushes. And it just so happens, because God does a lot of just so happening, it just so happens that the daughter of the Pharaoh comes by. His, history calls her Hatshepsut. She was a, a feisty girl from the word go. She later kept her own brother off the throne for a goodly period of time. She was tough. And she sees this baby and she says, I, I'm supposed to kill this baby. My, my daddy says so. I think I'll keep him. And she does, and she ends up raising him there in the palace. By the way, has it ever occurred to you ladies that mama had to give him up twice? My, Moses' mother had, had to give him up twice there to the Nile River and then had to give him up again to this girl when he was weaned. Well, he spends his years in the palace. He grows up, and then one day he decides to go see how his Hebrew family is, is doing, how his brothers are doing. He sees an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, and he, he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, goes out the next day, and he sees a Hebrew smiting a Hebrew. He tries to separate them, and they say, What are you going to do, kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Now he, he knows it's known, so he has to run for his life. He spends the next 40 years of his life out there in the desert learning that he needs not in what he thought he was there in the palace. After 40, 40 years, at 80, God sends him back down there to bring about the exodus, the, the release of the people. And, and God, through a series of plagues, gets them out of the land of Egypt. He, he takes them down there by the Red Sea. He leads them to a place where they're going to be trapped. This isn't, this isn't a mistake. This is God's plan. He leads them to a place where they're going to be trapped because he wants them to know that you're never really trapped when you're following God. He parts the Red Sea for them. He uses the Red Sea both to give them deliverance and to destroy the Egyptians who were pursuing after them. Well, now they're on the other side of the Red Sea. They're out there in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt. But the question is, can Egypt ever be gotten out of them? Can they ever lay aside all the nature worship, all the animism, the idolatry? Can they truly come to understand there's one God and that He's not part of this universe? He made the universe. Can they ever have the proper sense of awe and reverence of a holy God? If so, it would take a lengthy and powerful process to untrain them out of the false and retrain them in the true. So when the children of Israel were safely through the Red Sea, the process began. God called Moses up onto the mountain to receive the law, including the famous Ten Commandments. But He didn't just give Moses the law. He also gave him a set of blueprints. He gave him a specific design for a house of worship that they'd set up in the very center of the nation and carry with them all the while they roamed in the wilderness all the way over to the Jordan 40 years later into the promised land. It was called the tabernacle. Look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Here is what God said when he opened that subject with Moses. <clears throat> Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God wanted to dwell with his people. Man, that's some condescension for the true God. 
Well, the tabernacle, first of all, had a courtyard surrounded by large, colorful curtains. It was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. The courtyard contained the altar of the burnt offering, the laver, the wash basin that the priests used to cleanse themselves. Once one was in the courtyard, he was actually looking at the tabernacle proper, the actual tent of worship. This was the enclosure that Aaron and his sons went into to perform the rituals of worship each day. It was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. The tabernacle proper had two compartments, the second of which was the back portion of the first one. The first part was called the holy place, and in that compartment there was the table of showbread, the candlestick, the altar of incense. The table of showbread was on the north side, candlestick on the south, altar of incense in the back, inches from that second compartment, the holy of holies. In the second compartment, the holy of holies, there was one object, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the most sacred object in Jewish life. It was an ornate golden box covered by a golden lid that was called the mercy seat. It had a golden cherubim on top of that. The Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, was a representation of the presence of God Himself in their midst, and God sent His presence down upon it. Whereas the false gods of Egypt never were present for their people, God actually made Himself present among His people. But there was a catch. Because this was the real God, the holy God, the God that both the books of Deuteronomy and the Hebrews describe as a consuming fire, there was a barrier erected between him and the people. In the back portion of that tabernacle, at the back of the holy place, God had Moses put up a veil to keep people out. Exodus 26, verse 31 through 33 says, Thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work, with cherubim shall it be made, and thou shalt hang it upon the four pillars of sheet and wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold on all the four sockets of silver. Thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. Only Aaron and his sons could ever go into the holy place. But the most holy place was even more guarded than that. Only the high priest could go in and he couldn't even do it most of the time. Leviticus 16.2 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. That's a serious warning. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, he could only come one time per year and only then by the carrying blood. No one else from the other tribes could even come into the first part of the tabernacle. Nobody but Aaron or those descended from him could go beyond the first part of the tabernacle. Nobody but the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and, and he could only go once a year. And there's this barrier between the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies that says, keep out, you are too dirty, you are too filthy, don't even think of coming in here. So this is the bringing of the veil. Notice the barrier of the veil. Now, with most prohibitions, they get less ominous over time. They get less weak. They get, they get weaker, less strong, less respected until people eventually ignore them or forget about them. But with the veil, that wasn't the case. The tabernacle was carried everywhere that Israel went as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It kept them all these years. They kept it for all these years. And it kept them out for all these years. It was God's way of reminding them they were too dirty and too filthy to be in His presence. And they were. They get into the wilderness, they start complaining. Well, you don't like it here. You don't like it back in Egypt with the onions. They, they make a golden calf and then come up with an excuse a four-year-old wouldn't even, wouldn't even buy into. I just chuck gold in the fire. Out come this calf. They're dirty. They threatened Moses. They followed the evil report of the ten spies. They were so dirty and so filthy that the veil remained in place, that barrier remained in place all 40 years. 
And then finally the tabernacle was carried over the Jordan into the promised land. Look at Joshua chapter 18. They they set it up in a a place called Shiloh where it's going to stay for about 130 years. Joshua 18.1, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there and the land was subdued before them. So the tabernacle and the veil made it all the way through the wilderness wanderings into the promised land. After after all that, the barrier is still in place. That that thing that says keep out, it's still there and it needed to be. They, They were dirty. Achan steals what does not belong to him and takes the Babylonian garment. There's the idolatry. Even their judges are dirty. There's Samson and all of his iniquity. So all the while the tabernacle stood, there's this barrier, this message, don't even think about coming in here. I'm too holy. You're too dirty. Stay out! The tabernacle wouldn't last forever though, nor would the time of the judges. When David became king, he determined to build God a house. He determined to erect a permanent temple to replace the mobile tabernacle. And we know that God told him no and that, that Solomon would be the one to build it. So David collects the materials. Then when Solomon gets on the throne, he builds the temple. The size was bigger, but the pattern of the interior structure was the same. The first part's the holy place. The second part in the back of the holy place is the holy of holies. And just like in the tabernacle, there's this, there's this veil, there's this barrier. They says, stay out. I'm too holy. You're too dirty. Don't even think of coming in here. Solomon's temple was significantly bigger than the tabernacle. 1 Kings 6 2 says, The house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits, the breadth thereof 20 cubits, the height thereof 30 cubits. That's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It was double the size of the tabernacle. And that lets us know the veil would also have been doubled in size. So the warning, no access allowed, God's too holy, you're too dirty. It had gotten bigger through the years. And it needed to be. People were so dirty. There's Saul's rebellion. There's David's great sin, adultery, and murder. That barrier was understandable when you consider all of this. Politically, though, the monarchy did pretty well under David and Solomon. But it fell on pretty hard times after that. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne and he ends up splitting the kingdom ten and two. But for around 400 years, the temple still stood. The veil was still in place. The message was still clear. Don't even think of coming in here. I'm too holy. You're too dirty. And they were. Ahab and Jezebel debauch the nation. Jeroboam builds golden calves, but one's in Bethel, one up there in Dan. They're sending their children through the fire to Moloch. The veil is understandable when you consider all this. A holy God would never want that coming into his presence. Israel finally fell to Assyria. Then in 586 B.C., the sin of Judah led to the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Judah was taken. The temple was destroyed. We read that in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. And for all the 70 years that Judah was in captivity in Babylon, the house of God lay in ruins. Now the ark, by the way, was gone before that happened. The last time we see it is during the reign of godly Joash, who apparently hid it. But for 70 years, the children of Israel were basically back to square one. Just like in Egypt, they're in Babylon. They're in a polytheistic culture. They've made gods out of everything. So when the captivity ends, God starts all over again with the untraining and the retraining. Zerubbabel builds a second temple. You read of that in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8. It's not as big as Solomon's had been there. They're pretty poor and people are crying about the size of it. But though the scale and the size and grandeur had changed, what hadn't changed was that there was still a holy place and there was still a most holy place and there was still a barrier. There's still a veil. There's still a sign that says don't think about coming in here. I'm too holy. You're too dirty. Stay out. Don't come in here. And it was needed. The people wouldn't tithe and they were given to drunkenness and they were violent and they were putting each other in bondage and they were marrying heathens. They were dirty and God made a veil to keep them out. And it was smaller, not nearly as nice as Solomon's temple. You read of that in Zechariah 4, 8, and 9. 
But through the years, the longer the temple stood, the more they came to love it. And it actually outlasted Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel's temple made it for 586 years. It made it until a man named Herod the Great in the 18th year of his reign and redid it nearly completely and basically turned into a brand new one. Construction on it started 16 years before the birth of Christ. And then 30 years after the birth of Christ, there's this exchange in the temple. John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. They've been arguing back and forth. And, and John two nineteen, the Bible says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple and building. Will thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So there's a misunderstanding which temple he's talking about. The temple had been open for use nine years after construction began, but work continued on it to make it grander and grander. It went on far beyond this exchange in John 2. In fact, it went on for 60 years. This temple was even bigger than Solomon's. It's so much bigger that before Herod built it, he rebuilt the top of the mountain. It had been 17 acres. He brings in dirt and stone, makes the top of the mountain 35 acres. He builds this new temple on it. But in that temple, there's another enclosure. There's a holy place. Beyond the holy place is a holy of holies. There's a barrier. There's a veil saying, keep out, keep out. And it's not gotten smaller. In fact, it's gotten much bigger. A passage from the Mishnah, the early codification of Judaism's oral law, says the veil was one handbreadth thick, and its length was 40 cubits, its breadth 20 cubits. In other words, it was 60 feet long, 30 feet high, roughly 4 inches thick. It says that it took 300 priests to move it once a year for the high priest to get back there. What a barrier! I could hand you a simple piece of denim, fold it over, and sew around the edges, and the strongest man in here could not rip it. And yet we've got now a barrier four inches thick, 60 feet, 30 feet. It's God saying, keep out, keep out. Nothing's changed. You're still too dirty. I'm still holy. Don't come in here. And it was needed. The people set aside Scripture in favor of tradition. They were hypocrites and adulterers and so much more that God despises. And all the while that Christ came and went in the temple as a babe and as a boy and as a man, even he wasn't allowed behind the veil and it was his house. If he, the perfect son of God, wasn't allowed simply because he was from the tribe of Judah, we would never in a million lifetimes be allowed. All of this said that our access to God was cut off and denied. We were doomed and hopeless. There was nothing we could do. God was holy. We were dirty. There was no access. So it's the bringing of the veil and the barrier of the veil. But then notice the breaking of the veil. Back where we began... Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. For 1,500 years there had been a veil. For 1,500 years there had been an impenetrable barrier. For 1,500 years there had been a warning sign that said, No access allowed. God is too holy. You're too sinful. Don't think about coming in here. And God was right. We were too dirty. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Genesis 6.5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every imagination and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Isaiah 64.6, But we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We were doomed. But then the most amazing thing happened. God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. He is conceived in the virgin womb of a girl named Mary there in Nazareth. He is born as a virgin-born babe in Bethlehem. He grows up in that area. He visits the temple at 12 years old. He has the anonymous life until he's 30, goes into the ministry. He is baptized by John the Baptist. He faces off and beats the devil in the wilderness. He starts his public ministry, does 
miracles and preaching for three and a half years, runs afoul of every authority in that area. They finally take and by wicked hands try him, arrest him, beat him, torment him, crucify him, put him to death. They murdered him. Say, preacher, you shouldn't say that. Well, Acts 3, 3, 15, Peter told them, you killed the prince of life. Yes, he laid down his life, but they're still guilty of killing him. They're still guilty of murdering the Son of God. Scripture says so. Mankind put Jesus to death. Mankind put a crown of thorns on the head of the Son of God and beat it down the reed. Mankind poked a spear into his hide. Mankind ripped his beard out of his face. Mankind beat him with their fists. Mankind beat him with a flagellum till his organs are showing. Mankind drove nails through his hands and feet. Mankind killed the Lord of glory. This was bar none. Mankind's worst moment. It was worse by far than the murmuring of the golden calf and the threatening of Moses and following the report of the evil ten spies. It was worse by far than Achan's theft and idolatry, the behavior of Samson and the other wicked judges. It's worse by far than Saul's rebellion and David's adultery and murder and Ahab and Jezebel's depravity, giving their babies to Moloch in the fire. Worse by far than setting aside scripture in favor of tradition and drunkenness and idolatry. Mankind had never, ever gone any lower and gotten any dirtier and gotten any filthier than the day that we put the precious son of God to death and it's only logical that because of that that would be the moment that God says see that's why the veil is in place you are dirty and you are rotten and you are horrible and you can spend all eternity in the flames I want nothing more to do with you the barrier stays but instead it was at that exact moment the second he died that the veil of the temple was ripped apart from the top to the bottom are you getting that it didn't start at the bottom it started at the top you say man couldn't reach that high. Mankind didn't have to reach that high. God with the same hands that flung all the stars into space reached down and grabbed it from the top and ripped it into shreds. He destroyed the veil and that led the writer of Hebrews to say having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. When Christ died the old veil the sign that said no access. God's too holy, you're too sinful, don't think of coming in here, was ripped to shreds by the very God who created it to begin with. And the very second the man got as low as he could possibly go, and as filthy as he could ever be, and as putrid as he could ever smell in God's nostrils, God ripped the veil then. You say, I don't get it. What significance does the timing of the ripping of the veil have? Well, if he'd ripped it at the point of murmuring, he might have put it back when Moses was threatened. If he'd ripped it at the point of most being threatened, he might have put it back when the judges behaved so badly. If he'd ripped it when the judges behaved so badly, he might have put it back when David committed adultery. If he'd, if he'd ripped it when David committed adultery, he might have put it back when Ahab and Jezebel got so debauched. If he'd ripped it when Ahab and Jezebel got so debauched, he may have put it back when they sent their children to the fire. If he'd ripped it when they sent their kids to the fire, he might have put it back when they set the scripture aside and decided that their words meant more than God's words. But by waiting to rip the veil until the moment they could not go any lower, God the Father made a statement about how well Jesus the Son did dealing with our sins the moment when we needed it the most. What need is there a veil to keep us out when according to 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins 
sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What need is there for a veil to keep us out? When 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What need is there of a veil to keep us out? When Psalm 103, 12 says, our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. What need is there of a veil to keep us out? When Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. What need is there of a veil to keep us out? When Romans 4, 22 and 24 says, his righteousness has been imputed to our account. What need is there for a veil to keep us out? When 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that the old has passed away and we become brand new. What need is there to keep us out? When God became dirty so we could become holy. For 1,500 years, God sent a message that said, keep out. But once the payment for our sin was made, he tore that and replaced it with a message that said, come on in. He took down the old veil of barrier and put a new veil of a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body says, come on in through my wounds. Come on in through my sacrifice. Our homeless guy got saved. He, he, he got to enter in. I'm going to tease him when I get to heaven. I got to lead a guy to the Lord a week after he got out of prison for five years for robbing a church. He got to enter in. There's a lady that comes and sits in our service periodically. 30 years ago in a drug-induced haze, she killed her own two babies. But somebody took a Bible behind the prison bars and she bowed the knee in the heart and asked Christ to save her. She gets to enter in. You see, there's no more veil. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. If you want to be saved, there's no reason why you can't. Preacher, you, 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 you don't know what I've done. I know it's not worse than what happened today. The veil was rent. There's nothing you've done worse than that. And that's the moment he ripped the veil. And I know number two, that if you've really received Christ as your Savior, you don't need to let the devil sow doubts in your mind because the veil's gone. God's not trying to keep you out. He's doing everything in His power to bring you in, and He's done it. He said, second, he said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All the Father give to me shall come to me. Him that come to me, I'll in no wise cast out. He said in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Some men count slackness, but His long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The veil's gone, and it was torn the very second we needed it the most. If you want to be saved, you can. And if you are saved, stop doubting it. So I'll stand, preacher, it's yours. So I'll stand. His about eyes are closed. If I can have somebody lead a, lead a hymn of invitation, I'm saying, Brother Daniel's going to play. Listen to me very carefully. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I know this. I know that I'm saved. I have repented of my sins. I've trusted what Christ did on Calvary. If I died before I got to the parking lot, I know for a fact I'd go to heaven. If you can, if you can say that, would you slip your hand up where I can see it? God bless you. Hands over the building. You can put them down. Please listen to me very carefully. There's a lot of people in this room this afternoon. A crowd this size, I, I really have no doubt there's multiple people likely that do not know Christ as their Savior. So listen to me very carefully. You may be one that's sitting here thinking, I sure like to be saved, but I can't. If you paid attention, you know that you can. So listen to me. If you're here and you say, Preacher, if God will have me, I sure would like to be saved. If that's you, you slip up your hand where I and the pastor can see it. Just slip it across the building. Preacher, if God will have me, I'd like to be saved. Slip it up right across the building where you see it. Okay, listen to me very carefully. 
If you're one of the ones that needs to be saved, in just a minute we have the invitation when we're going to sing. Just make your way to the altar. Kneel down, slip your hand up. And we'll send somebody to the Bible to help you. Don't, don't, don't leave here without Christ. But number two, how many of you in this room would be so kind to say, Preacher, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the devil does a very good job at sowing doubts in my mind about my salvation. Would you slip your hand up where I can see it? Hands going up all across the building. All across the building. All across the building. Let's be careful. God tore the veil when He did for a reason. He is not interested in you not going to heaven. He did everything in the world to get you to go to heaven. So if you ask Him, why don't you just trust Him? Why don't you make your way to the altar and say, Lord, if you tore the veil then, I'm going to stop worrying now. The altar's open. The Daniel's going to sing. You come. Whatever you need, just step out and come right now. Just step out and come. God bless you. See folks moving across the building. Good, 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 good. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. Come on.